There's a couple things that I never miss any day ever, and, and one of them is Cardio Miracle. If I could have, I would have started taking this when I was 20. I began taking Cardio Miracle, and as I did that, almost within a few weeks, I could feel a difference in my energy level. Cardio Miracle has been a game changer in my life. Since I've been taking Cardio Miracle on a very consistent basis, my recovery time is amazing. I really want to be a walking testimonial of what Cardio Miracle does for the body. I just feel, I feel good all over when I take it. For me, Cardio Miracle is my future insurance policy for a great life and pushing life like I've always done and feeling great while I'm doing it. Being on Cardio Miracle has created a pathway for me to be normal, to be healthy. I really feel like, like Cardio Miracle has extended my husband's life. It's been amazing. For me as a doctor, Cardio Miracle is a staple. I have seen Cardio Miracle improve the lives of many of my patients with many different types of chronic conditions. This is something that's actually made a huge difference and it's staying that way. It's not just a, a fluke, it's real. Cardio Miracle is one of the best things that ever happened to me because when I was searching, I was able to find it. Cardio Miracle for me has really been a blessing in my life. It's just been a, a special experience for me to be able to have Cardio Miracle. So basically for a 97-year-old, I think that I uh, feel a little more like maybe 87. <laughs> Cardio Miracle's made it so that I can, I, I can live day to day without drama and trauma. If you want to know how important Cardio Miracle is to me, I've got my family on. You know, I don't know anything more powerful than to say, I have my own family doing this. You know, we want to live our best lives, so I'm doing what I can, and Cardio Miracle is one of the best tools I have on a daily basis. Adding Cardio Miracle, it's like a secret weapon to your health. Everyone should use Cardio Miracle. Cardio Miracle will always be a part of my life. Cardio Miracle, for me and my husband, has, has saved our life. Literally. I am so in love with this. I want everybody to know because if we don't feel healthy, we can't help other people. Cardio Miracle gives me the boost that I need to tackle all the tasks that I have every single day. It was indeed a difference maker when I got on the Cardio Miracle. I'm achieving things I couldn't do even when I was younger. Cardio Miracle for us, for me, for my family was a lifesaver. Cardio Miracle for me and my family has been, it's just, it's been a miracle. I wouldn't even be functioning without Cardio Miracle. I know for a fact. And so I say, thank you, Cardio Miracle. That's, that's one of those miracles in my life that I'm grateful for. We will never be without Cardio Miracle. Cardio Miracle to me is hope in a glass. When you create nitric oxide, you are igniting the spark of life in the cell. It is the miracle molecule. That's why we call this Cardio Miracle, because of nitric oxide and what it can do for the whole body. We all know it's coming and it's not gonna be pretty. It's great to have storable food, but when that runs out, what are you gonna do? Your best defense against the coming apocalypse is to have seeds so you can grow your own food. 
So I've been looking for various different seeds for the last couple of years. And off the bat, almost all seed companies are the same, as long as they're non-GMO, heirloom, yada, yada. But it's the following years that really concern me. So I bought a whole bunch of seeds last year. And when you get seeds, there's, there's a lot of seeds in a pack, a whole lot. You're probably not gonna use them all if you have a small garden. So you wanna make sure they last again the following year. So the best company I found for these seeds is called Survival Essentials. And when you go on their webpage, it says your best defense against the coming apocalypse. So go to survival-essentials.com, save 10% with promo code DEFIANT and get ready because we're gonna need to eat. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't trust the food in the grocery store anymore. I don't trust it unless I can plant the seed with my own hands and watch it grow with my own eyes and know where it's coming from and feed it to my family. So survival-essentials.com, promo code DEFIANT, saves you 10%. It's time to resist. They can't arrest us all. And they can't keep all your kids home from school. They can't keep every government building closed. We don't have to accept the mandates, lockdowns, and harmful policies of the petty tyrants and feckless bureaucrats. We can simply say no, not again. The only way to stop these mandates is to refuse to comply, refuse to show vaccine passports, refuse to wear a mask, refuse to stay at home. We will not comply with Fauci. We will not comply with Joe Biden. And we will not comply with authoritarian governors. I am not going to comply. This ends now.
Hello, friends. Welcome back to Freedom Gardens, episode number eight. So um, today I'm going to tell you all a story. I'm going to tell you mine and Mick's story. That's pretty incredible, actually. The last time I told it was on, well, in full. I've told bits and pieces of it here and there. Uh, last time I told it was on Janet's podcast on Deplorable Nation two years ago. Uh, and a lot's happened since then. Um, I remember sitting at my kitchen table in our old house with uh, a little piece of crap laptop in front of me and uh, a shitty microphone attached to the table and no, no lights, no fancy anything. You know, I mean, it was the very beginning. We've come a very long way, but um, it took us a long point to get there. But before I do tell that story, uh, Mick wanted me to share what's going on in the garden since this is Freedom Gardens, um, because he went out there the other day and he was kind of shocked at how well things were doing. So for those of you guys that have seen the uh, previous Freedom Gardens as we've gone along and we've been planting stuff, um, here we go. So this is the, let me share this. This week I planted the West Garden. Mick's like Mick loves to uh, make fun of me, but that's what it is. It's the West Garden. So um, So watch this real quick. And I built another electroculture Fibonacci sequence structure in here. So, all right. So I planted the West Garden today, or a good portion of it, some of it yesterday. Figured I should make a video before I forget what I planted where. So, starting here. And of course, I did the electroculture Fibonacci sequence structure again. So, I've got beans. In this and then down here is going to be a line of sunflowers and marigolds on that side and then right up close on this structure here um, is going to be cucumbers and squash cucumbers and squash going all the way around all down here so it'll climb up it until we get to the thinner one and then that has beans beans going all the way around the outside so here, a small bed of okra and kohlrabi, right, butting up to a bed of corn and squash. I transplanted the peppers from the container garden in the back. Um, those are already doing well. In here, I planted beans and peas inside the squares. And then in the middle... Cauliflower. I couldn't remember then, but it's cauliflower. Mm -hmm. I did kohlrabi in the middle. So I think another pepper there and there and there. So these are the hot peppers. And then over here, I did a specialty herb bed. So specialty herb bed is going to be burdock root. This all got planted today. So burdock root, um, marshmallow root, valerian, St. John's wort, and Anise. Yeah. Um, again, that's the corn. 
and then over here, and then there's a line of, I marked it with a flag, a line of radishes going right down here. And right in the middle there, there's a line of, uh, half a line past where the block goes, of carrots, uh, some bunching onions, some garlic, and lettuce going down there, right next to the okra and the corn. So in here, in the middle here, um, I did cabbage, cabbage, pak choy cabbage. So golden acre cabbage, Copenhagen cabbage, pak choy cabbage, uh, mustard leaf and collard greens. And then in between each of these tomatoes, I'm sorry, peppers. And these are all either green, yellow or orange. They're all bell peppers. Um, I've got cilantro and lovage cilantro and lovage in between each of those and actually inset in these little holes here um i have okra just okra and then over here is carrots onions and spinach going all the way down one after another inside the bed here is peas and behind it is squash and uh, butternut squash in particular. I'm gonna put more pellets down the line here. And as I do that, I'll plant uh, melons and stuff behind them so they can grow up the pellet. So that is the second garden so far. I have a couple more beds to plant, obviously this big open space here and this smaller one there, but we made quite a bit of progress today. And I'm waiting for the seeds that I just planted uh, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, uh, pepper seeds primarily to sprout. Um, and then I will plant them in that big open space there. So that's coming along very nicely. And then... And then here is the, the East Garden. This was just this morning. All right, let's see how our garden's doing this morning. Getting there. I guess we'll start. Ooh, that's looking nice. Those are looking awesome. Those grapes. start back here. Something, I believe, may have popped up over here, right there. Hmm. Maybe not yet. I thought I saw one the other day. All right. Well, these peas are coming up here. They're going to trellis up this. The herbs are doing well. This grape is blooming down here, although I still need to cut it back. This little blueberry's coming back. Lavender's looking nice. I cut the parsley every, all the time because we use it, obviously, in food. Rosemary's looking nice. This grape is pretty phenomenal. It's gotten very big very fast. And this is growing very nicely. More parsley. I've got to plant more herbs in here. We'll get to that. 
marigolds and borage. Borage and marigolds. And in here as well. And this is all going to be marigolds and borage in here. So that's coming. And in there. Oh, grand peas. Kohlrabi and beets inside. And the tomatoes. This tomato, I'm not sure about. It's still alive. It's struggling, but it's still alive. These peas are quite phenomenal, though. Hello, beakers. Hello, Ruby. And in here, the rutabaga is starting to pop up. These potatoes are insane. I mean, look at that. Salad bed coming up very nicely. And this tomato. Ooh. This tomato here. It's looking very nice. Then this is the asparagus we've been going on about. This one stalk goes all the way up to here. Okay. That's that's literally four feet tall. And the one next to it is half its size. That's crazy. The herbs are going nuts. All in here. Giant Siberian kale in here. And I put uh, garlic seeds in, in between. That tomato is awesome as well. And then these asparagus, these are first year asparagus. I mean, I just planted these roots, not even a week and a half ago. And there they go. And these guys pop up, a little more pop up every day. Brussels sprouts and this random pea here. Onions, the onions are popping up all in there. This whole bed is onions, except for that one pea right there. And the peas back there are going crazy too. Onions, now these are bunching onions. The ones in here are sweet onions. There's a giant basil I planted in here, mammoth basil. So I'm waiting on that to sprout. Oh, look at that. The squash sprouted. It's gonna climb up this. And then there's spinach back there that's doing amazing. Corn, corn that I planted in a spiral and it's all starting to come up now. So we'll see how that goes. And then all right, we've got beets and turnips in here. Those are looking nice. Radishes. 
kohlrabi, beets, carrots, kohlrabi, beets, turnips. These turnips have another two weeks or so. Beets have another month and uh, carrots have another two months. Here. Turnips, again, looking nice. So when I pull all these, I'll replace them with tomatoes that I'm growing in the back. Then carrots and parsnips, onions, bunching onions, and then more radishes. These are almost done. Literally waiting on the roots to grow now, although they seem very leggy. It may not be acidic enough for it because this is compost and radish is like a higher pH level. But radish leaves work well in salads too. So if I don't get the radish roots, which I'm actually okay with because who can eat 200 radishes? I can use the radish leaves in salads. Same thing here. And then over here, look at these guys. This is what Mick was talking about with leaves, tomato leaves the size of his hand on a cherry tomato. This is a cherry tomato. Look at that leaf, that's insane. These things are huge. Right next to the, I mean, it's on the electroculture structure. So are these peas. And then this one as well. And those peas down there are looking very nice. Look at that. Those are all beans in there. And okra, I believe, in there. And we've got beets here. And there. Our cucumbers have started coming up. They'll climb up the trellis here. We've got more beets going on in there. Carrots doing nicely. In, and then salad greens in the center. Only one of these cucumbers has popped so far, but that's okay. Oh, nope, two. There we go. Salad greens again, looking nice in the center. Carrots, all those cucumbers popped. So. If these don't sprout soon, I'll transplant some of those over here. And these beans I just planted the other day. And look at that, they're insane. So, garden is going nicely. We're gonna have a ton of food. Of course, Mick just came in and yelled at me because it's about to pour outside and the chickens and the ducks were not up because they weren't all home. And the reason they weren't all home was because I started to fix the outside fence today and I fixed the side that I thought I made it higher that I thought that Annie was jumping. But um, she actually, she was not, she wasn't jumping there. I think she was jumping further down. And so she jumped back out and she went chicken chasing. And she actually chased, well, two of them were across the street and wouldn't come home yet. So I didn't put them up for the show. And, uh, but she chased my favorite chicken cookie into the pond 
and Cookie swam across the pond. And my neighbor across the pond texted me and said, hey, is this yours? And sent me a picture of Cookie in her garage. So my son and I drove around and picked her up and drove home with her in the truck. No joke. This was hysterical. Driving home with Cookie. Cookie swam across the pond to get away from Annie. And my neighbors across the pond texted me and said, is she yours? Because uh, she was in their garage. Now we are driving home with Cookie in the truck. Silly Cookie. What are we going to do with you, silly Cookie? She's all wet. It's okay, Cookie. It's okay, my Cookie. Yeah, don't put it in manual. Put it in drive. All right. Fun times. Yeah, and Cookie's our favorite, and she's the most cuddly. So um, we absolutely cannot lose Cookie. So anyway, Nick, I think, put all the birds up. So hello, Sparky. All right. And I'm going to share the favorite part of my day with you guys before uh, I start talking. My favorite part of the day is the stampede in the morning. We're a little late today, so they're kind of mad, but that's okay. Good morning, birds. How we doing? You ready to come out? Peanut butter. Stop. You're such a brat. Go on, Rebel. Uh, yeah, she totally pecked me right there. She ran right up and just pecked me right on the sandwich. What do you want, peanut butter? Mm-hmm. Go. Go, you little bitch. Go. She's such a bitch. She loves Mick. She'll snuggle with Mick. She she lets him pick her up and pet her and all that. But no, nope. She just runs up and pecks me. So anyway, um, <laughs> we do have a chicken that thinks she's a duck. <laughs> okay. This is not her though. Last bit of chicken porn here. Every once in a while, when I'm over here collecting eggs, which we got a nice little haul this morning, this one comes up for some snuggles. Huh. Hi, pretty girl. Hi, pretty girl. What you doing, baby? And of course, Cookie's our favorite. Hi, huh, Cookie. Cookie. Out you go, Cookie. Okay. So. All right. Now that that's taken care of, we're all settled in. I'll tell you guys our story. So, uh, in case you hadn't heard, Mick's mother was my fifth grade teacher. And 
we first met, we went to different schools um, in neighboring towns and he's uh, two years older than me, but a grade ahead of me because I was a grade ahead of most people my age. So he came on a field trip with us to um, the Statue of Liberty because his mother was my teacher. And I had cut my thumb because we were supposed to build a house out of foam board to architectural standards. And of course I, you know, sliced my thumb open with an X-Acto knife. So I had all these big nasty stitches uh, and it was wrapped up in a pretty loose bandage. So we're on the bus and I'm sitting next to this kid who's gone completely libtarded. Um, and I, I'm, I take the bandage off and I'm waving my stitches in front of Mick's face because he's sitting right in front of me. So I like my hands in front of him, wave my hand in his face. And he proceeded to throw up on the bus because it was pretty gross. So uh, that was my first memory of Mick. Um, I didn't see him again. I was, that was fifth grade. So I was 10. And uh, then when I was 15, my mom got remarried and uh, we moved to the neighboring town where Mick lived. So, but I moved halfway through the school year because my mom was going to let me finish out the school year in my, in our original town. And I took advantage of basically being home alone all the time to party my little butt off. So she yanked me as soon as she found out and plopped me into a significantly smaller school. And, uh, so I, half the classes didn't even transfer over. So I had a lot of free time and so they assigned me someone to show me around and whatnot. And so first period, I didn't have a class. So I went with my student, whatever, escort um, to uh, her class, which was band. And we walk in, marching band, okay? We walk in and everyone's making fun of Mick. And I don't immediately recognize him. There's something familiar about him, but I didn't hear his last name at that point. Um, cause of course his mother had said to us, you know, in fifth grade, you know, I, I have four boys all around y'all's age. One of you girls might end up marrying one of my, one of my boys someday. And we were all like, Oh God, no, Mrs. Q. And, and I was a sucker that did that. So, but, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm 15, I'm a sophomore and in high school and mix a junior. And I, I show up in the middle of, in his school and I jump on the bandwagon of making fun of Mick. Um, and I get no reaction out of him whatsoever, nothing. And I was a vicious bitch. So every day for three months, I'd go into his room, first period, and I would just rip into him. Now, mind you, Mick's head was the same size as it is now, but he had this shock of blonde hair, platinum blonde hair that just was it went everywhere. It like stood up all over the place. It was crazy. Um, and his shoulders were about half the size that they are now because he didn't fill out really until he went to the army. Um, so we called him bobblehead Mick. Okay. He, he looked kind of ridiculous. Um, he was cute, but he, he, he definitely hadn't filled out at that point. So, uh, yeah, bobblehead Mick made a lot of fun of him until the very last day of school when I walked in and before I can even open my mouth for my daily tirade, he lets, he just lets rip. Like he rips into me like you could not even imagine. He was vicious. I mean, he called me the nastiest things. It was epic. 
And I was so excited that I got a reaction out of him that I just died laughing. I was like on the floor laughing. I laughed so hard I cried. Not because of anything he was saying. I was just so happy that I got a reaction out of him. Right. Anyhow. So then the following year, he's a senior. I'm a junior. And uh, I turned 16. I crashed a couple cars. Well, I crashed the same car a couple times until I totaled it. And then one of my parents' friends sold me a car for a dollar. It was a 79 Chevy Malibu. It was a beast. It was this giant steel boat. And it had been spray painted red, obviously in the sun. It was baked on. The interior was like fluorescent shag purple. Um, So we covered it with a black shag, like seat cover, you know, big bench seats. Uh, We put fuzzy dice in the the mirror because why not? You never knew how fast you were going because the speedometer sat at zero all the time. And we had to send away to Maine for plates because the emissions in the engine were all plugged off with metal plugs. So it would not pass pass emissions in Connecticut. So uh, you could open the trunk and see the ground. So we put a, you know, some plywood back there so that shit wouldn't fall out. And we tied the bumper on with duct tape and bungee cord and wire hanger. Um, and, uh, it it was, oh, you could lock the doors, but you couldn't unlock them. So don't lock them. It was, it was a beast. We called it the beast anyway. So Mick and I had a mutual friend. We hated each other with a passion or rather I hated him. He kind of stalked me. Like he'd skip his classes and he'd stand in front of whatever classroom I was in. And he'd like watch through that half cloudy window, you know, it's kind of creepy actually. Um, he always knew where I was and what I was doing. He kind of followed me around like a lost puppy dog. It was kind of, kind of creepy and funny at the same time. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we had a mutual friend who mutually pissed us off. And so all of a sudden, cause we had a lot of mutual friends. So then all of a sudden, uh, we joined forces to get back at our mutual friend that pissed us off and we succeeded. And then all of a sudden, somehow we became friends and we shared this car, this epic car. And I dated this one guy, Mark off and on for years, uh, like four years from the time I was, I got there from the time I was a sophomore in high school through, um, yeah, through college, through my sophomore year in college (coughs) off and on mostly off sometimes on, but whenever we were off, we would take the beast and we would go play mailbox baseball without the mailbox. And we would go run over his mailbox so many times, never hurt the beast. Once hit a tree on purpose just to see if we could hurt anything in the beast. You couldn't hurt the beast. So uh, hurt the shit out of the tree, like dented the tree, didn't hurt the beast. So then I went away to college and I could not take my a car with me because I went to Ohio Wesleyan for my first year and I couldn't take a car with me as a freshman. So I gave Mick my car. Okay. Um, I forgot to mention there was a hole in the brakes in the brake cylinder. When I got it, it was about the size of a quarter. God knows how big it was when I gave it to Mick because we did not get that shit fixed. Okay. I was like, it's like air brakes on a truck. You just got to start pumping them a mile out. So six months into college for me, I have no idea, right? Um, Mick totals my car. Well, he totaled a bunch of other cars. Uh, He blew the transmission in the car. So, and he blew the brakes entirely. Um, Like he basically, like a whole bunch of cars sandwiched him because he didn't stop and he ran into someone else and it was a big mess. And uh, so 
he doesn't have the guts to tell me that my car is totaled. So I come home at Christmas expecting my car and it's not there. And my dad tells me, oh, no, 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 no. Mick destroyed that and, and we got rid of it. It went to like cash for kids or whatever, cars for kids. Yeah. I'm pissed. I have no car. I'm home on Christmas break. I'm, my, I'm not allowed to drive my parents' cars because I've totaled so many cars that their insurance has me listed that if I drive their cars, um, I will not be insured and neither will they. So I, I'm stuck without a vehicle, right? Totally fucked. Anyway, so I know that we have uh, one of our, another one of our mutual friends always has a big Christmas party and I knew Mick was going to be there. Now, mind you, he's at boot camp, but he was coming home for Christmas and I knew he'd be there. So I catch a ride with a friend and we show up late and I get there and Mick's playing beer pong in the driveway and I'm pissed. He f destroyed my car. Didn't have the balls to tell me about it. And here he is just merrily playing ping pong in the freaking driveway. Like, you know, life is grand. Yeah. So I start railing into him, of course, and I get no reaction back to like the original stone face, stone cold Mick. And I was like, fuck you. Watch me. I'm going to get a reaction out of you. So I walked up to him and I kick him square on the balls and I left him crying on the ground poor Mick. I had no idea that not only was he drunk, but he was tripping on acid. So when I showed up there screaming at him, all he saw was a dragon with flames coming out of its mouth. And then all of a sudden he just felt this incredible wave of pain and he's on the ground crying and there's a dragon standing over him laughing. So I didn't hear from him for a while, needless to say. <coughs> for about, hmm, about a year. Okay. Um, when I got an invitation to his wedding. Yeah. I was really pissed. I was so pissed that I didn't even respond. Right. I didn't respond. I didn't go nothing. I was furious. Like you didn't even have the balls to call me and tell me that you're going to get married. No, you just send me an invitation to your wedding. Why do you send another girl an invitation to your wedding? Like someone that you followed around like a puppy dog all through high school. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, big storm rolling in. Mick wasn't wrong. He usually isn't. Don't tell him I said that. Anyway, so, uh, so fast forward some, hmm, I don't even know. Uh, I didn't quite graduate from college, um, at that point, but, uh, I left and I, I went out to Colorado. I was in a, very bad relationship with a narcissistic asshole who abused me mentally, physically, verbally, pretty consistently for about four years uh, until I finally got to the point where I, I realized that if I stayed there, I was going to die. And so I left, um, kicked him out, said, fucking kill me. I don't care anymore. And started dating someone else who really helped me work through it. He was a nice guy. He had two kids, um, but he was divorced. He didn't want any more kids. He didn't want to get married. And so we were together for about two years and he, he really helped me find myself again. I give him a ton of credit for helping me through a really, really, really bad situation. Um, he was a great friend, great man, but you come to that point, you know, 
then all of a sudden I was 26. And what I didn't want coming out of an abusive relationship, you know, now I'd healed. And I wanted to, wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids and he didn't. So I had gone home for my mom's 50th birthday. My dad threw her a surprise party. Um, actually in Manhattan, he rented out a church and through a surprise party, um, told her that they were going to a wedding, but actually they were going to see Tony and Tina's wedding, um, on, on Broadway, right? Like in this church it was very funny. I had invitations made up for this wedding, the whole deal. She has no, she had no idea. Um, so I flew home from Colorado to go to her 50th birthday party. She didn't know I was coming. I, uh, stayed in the city, surprised her at her surprise party and, uh, had a grand time. And then the day that I got home, um, the next day when I actually showed up at the house, about three hours after I got home, Mick was there. Now, mind you, I hadn't seen him in six years and I'm still living with this guy in Colorado. That's a nice guy. And, uh, I hadn't seen him in six years. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing here? And he said, I, I came here last week looking for you and your parents told, or your mom, your dad told me that you'd be home uh, today. And so I, I came to find you. If I knew when your plane come in, I'd, I'd have been here when you got here. Um, okay. So we spent the whole week together. We, we had a blast, you know. I mean, just hung out friends, went to lunch, went shopping, um, you know, talked, never kissed, nothing romantic, just purely platonic friends. And then I went back to Colorado and he was actually recovering from his first purple heart. Um, he'd gotten uh, blown up and had 28 pieces of shrapnel in him. Um, he had actually gotten blown up on his way to the airport when he'd found out that his wife was banging nine guys while he was deployed. Not all at once, I don't think, although I wouldn't put it past her. Um, and, uh, so he, he went, was going home on emergency leave to essentially get a divorce and he got blown up and he ended up in Germany and then Walter Reed. And anyway, so he was on medical leave. So he came looking for me and he found me. And then uh, I went back to Colorado and, and we started talking. He, he started texting me. Well, first he started emailing me, okay? And he'd write me these long, beautiful emails, um, you know, I can't even describe them to you, just uh, telling me what he wanted out of life, um, telling me how much I, I meant to him when he was blown up. The only thing he saw was my face. Um, we, we worked through a lot of what he went through in that week. So then the emails turned into phone calls and he'd call me every Sunday when I was walking home from work. And then the phone calls turned into text messages. Text messages are insidious. And I was sharing a phone with my boyfriend. So I was like, dude, you can't text me. Like I already knew that, you know, there was something more there. So my boyfriend would know, would not be comfortable with it. Okay. So on one hand, Mick is telling me that 
he loves me. He's always loved me. Um, he wants to marry me. He wants, he wants us to have kids together. Uh, he wants to take care of me. He wants to show me the world. We'll travel all over. And on the other hand, this nice guy that I'm living with is telling me that he, he just wants things to carry on as they are. You know, he, he doesn't want to get married again. He doesn't want to have any more kids. And so I made a decision. Well, I do. So I left, called my mom and I said, uh, cause you know, that's what you do when you're 25 and, um, want to come home, want to get out of a bad situation, not a bad situation, just one that's not right for you. And within 24 hours, my mother had my porch full of boxes from 1-800 dial a box, which I didn't even know was a thing. Don't know if it still is. And, uh, she showed up with a van a week later and moved me back home. Okay. Which she had been pressuring me anyway for me to move back home. Um, she did not approve of me moving out to Colorado in the first place, even though I was there for five years. And, uh, like she wouldn't, you know, she wouldn't let me take my car because it was in her name and this, that, and the other. And so she told me she'd buy me a new car if I came home. Actually, she sold my car to buy me a new car and then I made payments on it. So anyway, basically I bought a car in her name again, neither here nor there. <laughs> and then, uh, um, so I moved home and that was July 9th, August 14th, we were going and I'm still, you know, texting Mick, talking to him. Uh, I got a job working at a horse barn nearby, running the barn, barn manager and teaching some lessons and whatnot. And so I'm talking to Mick just about every day, you know, but he's in California now and I'm in Colorado. Uh, cause after he is, was over his 30 days medical, he got PCS out to California to Fort Irwin. Okay. So my mom tells me we're going on vacation. We're going to the beach house in North Carolina, which they've since sold, but, uh, we're going on vacation and okay, cool. She's like, uh, but I need you to stay behind a little bit because there's someone coming with us. They're coming on the train and I need you to pick them up and drive them down to the Outer Banks. I'm sorry, what? You want me to pick up some stranger from the train and drive with them 10 hours in the car to the Outer Banks? Have you lost your freaking mind? And she's like, no, 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 they're not a stranger. They'll know you. I'm like, well, who am I picking up? Oh, you'll, they'll know you. They'll know me. Great. My mom, my mom has a million friends. My mother collects people like other people collect knickknacks. Okay. Um, my mother's never met a stranger. And I mean, she's, she can be crazy and intense, but she has a million friends and I don't remember the half of them, but they all know me. So, okay. So my parents leave to go to the other banks and, uh, I'm waiting on the train. Weather's starting to pick up, but okay. And I was sitting at the train station and Mick walks up to me, like taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around and I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? I have no idea. I am completely clueless. Like I do not put two and two together and come up with four. And nope, not here. Nope. I'm flabbergasted. What are you doing here? No idea. He's like, I'm coming with you on vacation, dumbass. <sighs> my mother. I knew it. My mother had said to me, she's like, just before I 
I left Colorado. She said, you know, I really like Neil. That was the guy I was living with. I really like Neil, but I really love Mick. And I would really love for Mick to be my son-in-law. Okay, mom. So now I'm at a train station and Mick's standing in front of me and I'm about to spend 10 hours in the car with him. So we go back to my house to get my luggage. <coughs> and he kisses me for the very first time in my bathroom over a dirty cat litter box that I was really supposed to clean before we left and I didn't. So, um, and the first time he kissed me, it was like fireworks went off, right? You get that tingle all the way down and you're like, oh shit, like, what is this? Okay. So we get in the car and we start driving to the Outer Banks and no, I'm sorry. We stopped at his parents' house first. Because of course he just come from California and he's about to go to North Carolina, but he has an hour to spend in Connecticut. So he's going to go see his parents. So we go to his parents' house and we get out of the car and he tells his parents that we're getting married. Mind you, he's not actually proposed to me. I've not proposed to him. Okay. We get out of the car and he tells his parents we're getting married and his mother throws a fucking fit. She's like, no, 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 absolutely not. Blah, blah, blah. You, you haven't spent any time together. You haven't lived together. Nothing, right? No, at least wait until after you get home because he's supposed to deploy. Um, this was August. He was due to deploy in January for a year. You know, she's like, give it some time. It takes 18 months to plan a wedding. She's like, she's trying to push it off. He's like, nope, we're getting married. Again, he's yet to ask me. Okay. So, um, and I play along because it kind of pissed me off that his mother was like, uh, no. Yeah. So then we get in the car and we drive to the Outer Banks, but the weather really, really picked up and it closed the Delaware Memorial Bridge. So we had to stop in DC at some friends of ours, some friends of my parents actually. And we get there and, um, again, we get out of the car and Mick tells them we're getting married. Okay. And again, I just, I go along. Okay. Um, and, uh, so they put us in the same room. I don't need to go into details. So the next morning we drive to the Outer Banks and we get out of the car and my mom looks at us and she goes, so when's the wedding? And I said, December 18th. And she goes, well, I guess we best get started. Anyhow, so Mick never actually proposed. We never dated. Um, I joke that my mother arranged the marriage and it's pretty much true. We spent that week in the Outer Banks planning the wedding, um, which was three, you know, not very much longer later, four months. And uh, that's not a lot of time to plan a wedding, but y'all haven't met my mother because she is a force of nature. She's like a steamroller. Either you go along with her or you get the fuck out of the way because she will just roll you right over. Okay. So we plan the wedding. It's this beautiful destination wedding at the Outer Banks since we're there anyway. And we love it. Um, for a week before Christmas, we have a red, white, and blue wedding. You know, the only thing that, that we had to do was choose our bridesmaids like choose our wedding party, choose our colors and choose our music. The, the song I opened with when we danced, that was our wedding song, um, which Mick chose. And it's even more appropriate now than it was then. I didn't even know it. Um, so 
we have this beautiful, amazing, gorgeous wedding. No honeymoon because he's deploying in three weeks. Uh, we spent a week. In fact, I mean, we had a, a whole day at the hotel, but we had all these family and friends around us for the wedding and we really wanted to spend time with them. You know, we had our whole lives together. We wanted to spend time with them. So uh, we cut our time at the hotel by ourselves short and went back and hung out with the family for the day on the day after our wedding. And uh, spent went back to Connecticut, spent a week there kind of doing the rounds of Christmas parties and whatnot, and then flew out to California. Mind you, he didn't actually tell the army that I was going home with him. Um, he didn't. I mean, you know, he told them he was getting married and stuff and we did all the paperwork and whatnot. Um, but he was living in the barracks and there wasn't enough time to get us, you know, off base living quarters. So I, he basically snuck me into the barracks and I lived there with him for a week before he deployed to the point where like when they'd come to do inspection, I'd have to jump out the window, like hide my bras and jump out the window and like hide under the ledge, like hide under the windowsill um, until they were done on the roof. Okay. And uh, so he, he deployed and he was going to Iraq. And the last time he'd gone, it wasn't pretty, but he was healed. So he was going back. And, uh, I drove his car back from California to Connecticut and my grandfather who had danced at our wedding and taken off his miracle medal and put it around Mick's neck and told him that it had saved his life in war. It had saved his cousin's lives, um, that it gets, it's been passed down through the family for generations. Mick was the 17th um, to everyone, to anyone who needed it, who was going to war because it would protect them. It was a miracle medal and it had been passed down through our family for 17 generations. And Mick was the 17th person to get it from its origin. Um, and my grandfather took it off from around his neck and he put it around Mick's neck and he told him, do not take this off. We still have it. Of course, Mick still wears it. And, uh, but after he took it off, my grandfather got sick and he'd never been sick a day in his life. And the week before my wedding, he, and he was 86, he was mowing his sister's lawns in Florida and hurricane Ivan hit and destroyed his and his sister's houses in Pensacola, Gulf breeze. And so my grandpa moved in, moved to Savannah to live with my aunt and uncle. Um, and he got sick and he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, pretty severe. And he took to his bed and he really didn't get out of it again. So my husband's deployed and he told me that I could pick any place in the country that had an army base nearby. And that's where we'd move because it was his sixth deployment. Okay. Number six. So he had his choice of assignments after this deployment. So pick any, any army base in the country and we'll move there. So grandpa's sick. So I was like, all right, I'm going to Savannah. So I come down to Savannah and um, I mean, grandpa was okay. I was only supposed to be here for a long weekend, but I came down and I'd been here once before in passing, maybe for a day with the asshole who, anyway, um, 
but I absolutely fell in love with the city and I didn't want to leave grandpa. I wanted to spend as much time with him as I could. So I extended my trip and then I extended my trip and I extended my trip some more. <laughs> and eventually uh, my aunt, who's a real estate agent was like, Hey, you know, there's this cute little house for sale around the corner, right around the corner from them. You should look at it. So I did. And I bought it because I had the power of attorney because my husband was deployed. And so he called me and he's like, hey, where are you at? I was like, oh, I'm in Savannah. He's like, is grandpa okay? Now he and grandpa are really close. Um, they'd, uh, you know, since Mick had been in my life for so long, grandpa had come up to visit and whatnot. And he'd met him when we were teenagers and, um, and they really, you know, they, they were writing letters back and forth. Um, mixed ingratiated himself into my family, even when he and I were not talking that six years that we didn't talk, he still talked to my parents regularly. I just had no idea. Okay. So he was really worried about grandpa. And I was like, you know, is grandpa okay? And I was like, no, no, grandpa's, grandpa's great. Grandpa's fine. I mean, you know, he's sick, but he's, he's hanging in there. Like I'm, I'm going and getting him crab legs, um, for dinner regularly. Cause it's all he really wants to eat. He humor him. He can eat whatever he wants. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I bought a house. So next time you come home, you should come home to Savannah because that's where we live now. And he was like, oh, okay. Well then, sounds good. That's one place I've not really been. So fantastic. You know, send pictures of the house, whatnot. Got it, got it going. And it was beautiful. So uh and then grandpa took a turn for the worse and he unfortunately passed. And, uh, right around the same time, not very long after he'd gotten there, actually, Mick was in country. He was going down the road. They were going about, they, they usually drive down those roads, 60, 70 miles an hour because of the IEDs. So they were going, you know, they're speeding down the road, but they hit an IED and it was big. It was so big that it upended their vehicle. They got the shockwave from it. And Mick was sitting in the front seat. He wasn't driving, but he was sitting in the front seat. And he hit his head so hard that he broke his Kevlar helmet. Um, and he didn't know at the time what was wrong with him. You know, he had a really bad headache that wouldn't go away. Uh, then he started having memory loss. So the army, in their infinite wisdom, issued him a Palm Pilot so that he could write things down, you know, electronically. Um, he was pretty fucked up, but he was in charge of personal security for the highest ranking officer in Iraq at the time. So he had his own living quarters. So he was probably having seizures and no one saw, no one knew. So this happened to Mick and he, and he told me he'd gotten blown up, but he was, you know, he was all right. Like he, in fact, <laughs> Um, he spent $700 on a new Kevlar helmet and, uh, I, I was really mad and I was like, what, what the fuck? Like, that's, that's half the mortgage payment. Like, what are you doing? We don't have that kind of money. And, uh, he's like, oh, well, I broke my helmet. I had to buy a new one and I wasn't going to take the one that the army issued me because obviously it didn't hold up the, so well the first time. Okay. You broke your helmet. Yeah. I got blown up. You know, it, it's fine. I'm fine. Okay. So grandpa passed, um, right around Memorial day in May. 
and they would not let Mick come home for the funeral. We tried, we tried the Red Cross, we tried, you know, like emergency relief for him to come home and they, they wouldn't let him come home because it wasn't his grandfather. So he came home in July on leave, on a week's leave. And my parents came down. Um, now mind you, this is the first time he's ever seen the house, never been there to the house in Savannah. And uh, my parents came down to see him. His parents didn't come down to see him, but my parents came down to see him. And very first night that he's home, he has a grand mal seizure in our bed. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is happening right now? Right? I mean, he's flopping around on our bed like a dead naked fish, right? With the claw hands and the whole deal. And I have absolutely no idea what's happening. I start screaming. My parents come running in. We call an ambulance. Um, they take them to the hospital and they do MRI and CAT scan, this, that, and the other. Um, they do all kinds of tests and they, they really can't figure out what's wrong with them. They need better doctors. Okay. So the next day, um, he doesn't really want to go, but I force him and we go to the military hospital because of course we, we just went to where the ambulance took us the first time, which was the local hospital. So we go to the military hospital with all of his, uh, test results and everything from the night before. And they do more tests and, uh, they come back and they tell me that he has an AVM in his brain. What the hell is that? An arterial venous malformation in his corpus callosum. Okay. I have no idea what that is, but it doesn't sound good. And they're like, we, we need to get him to a neurosurgeon. I mean, obviously there's a neurosurgeon there, but we need to get him to a better neurosurgeon. Um, cause he's not stationed here. He's not stationed in Savannah just cause I live here. He's stationed in California. So he needs to go back to California. And I need to tell his command that he's not going back to country. Okay. So I email his colonel and I'm like, hey, colonel, uh, Mick's fucked up in the head and he's not coming back. Colonel thinks I'm talking emotionally, right? So he emails me back thinking I'm some, you know, dumb new wife. Mind you, we've only been married for like six months. So I'm, you know, some dumb wife. And, uh, he's, he emails me and he emails me back and he's like, that's not your decision to make blah, 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 blah. And I, fuck, I lit into him. I email him back and I say, I don't think you understand. His brain is broken. I don't know long, how long he's been having seizures for, but he had one the first night he came home. I don't know long he's been having a significant memory loss for, but you gave him a Palm Pilot instead of sending him to a doctor to find out what was actually wrong with him. I don't know how long he's been having headaches for, but maybe someone should have actually looked at his brain instead of just throwing 800 milligram ibuprofen at him. Because at this point, he's two weeks out of surgery and he's probably going to die and his blood is going to be on your hands. So no, he is not coming back to you. Yeah, he didn't go back. Um, he went back to California and they looked at him in California and they did all kinds of pictures and angiograms and this, that, and the other. And, uh, they tell him they want to do gamma knife radiation to fix his brain. And he said, Oh, hell no, no, we're not doing gamma knife radiation. You're not going to give me brain cancer 
to fix this. No. So uh, we start making phone calls. We start pulling strings, pulling cards, because his dad is a general. He retired, but, you know, basically every general that's served in, that's serving in today's army wiped Mick's ass when he was a baby because they all served under his dad, at least in the army. And uh, they had rotating duties of watching the kids. The army's a big, happy family or a big, unhappy family these days. So we started pulling strings and we got his care transferred to Bethesda. Well, to Walter Reed, but it was right when Walter Reed and Bethesda were integrating. And neurosurgery had already moved to Bethesda. So we get him transferred to Walter Reed Bethesda to neurosurgery. And we go see the best neurosurgeon on the planet, Dr. Rocco Amanda. And Dr. Amanda um, takes a look at his all of his tests, his scans, his angiograms, this, that, and the other, and says, uh, yes, you have an AVM in your corpus callosum. Yes, I have operated on this before. No, we are not going to do gamma knife radiation. We are going to go the old-fashioned way. Okay. Uh, he said, first, we're going to start with an embolization. Said, what is that? Now, mind you, I am not a medical professional. Um, when I transferred schools, it happened to be the year that they taught anatomy. So at my old school, they taught anatomy junior year. At the new school, they taught anatomy sophomore year because I transferred in in March of my sophomore year. I never took anatomy, okay? I've learned a lot since then. But I'm like, explain it to me like I have absolutely no fucking clue what you're talking about because I really don't. So uh, he said, okay. He said, basically, it's like Bondo for the brain. We are going to run a catheter, a, 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 a micro catheter, a straw from the femoral artery in his leg all the way up to his brain into his, through his brainstem, into his brain. And we're going to put what I like to call Bondo for the brain in each one of these holes. Because when he hit his head in that initial incident, he hit it so hard that he detached the capillaries from the major artery that runs through his corpus callosum, which is the part of your brain that connects the two halves of your brain, okay? You got your right side of your brain, you got your left side of your brain, your corpus callosum is in the middle. And the major artery that runs through there that brings blood from one side of the brain to the other side of the brain, all the capillaries in that artery right in the middle all popped off. So now that major artery is like a soaker hose in his brain. And it's spewing blood where it does not belong. And that's why he's having seizures and he's hearing bubbles and having memory loss and all this because he's literally bleeding out in his brain and that blood instead of going into the right or left side of his brain as it's supposed to is pooling in the center. So he says, the doctor tells, tells me, all right, I'm, so I'm going to go in, I'm going to use Bondo for the brain and I'm going to plug off these little holes where the capillary is detached. Okay. And eventually the, the artery itself is going to atrophy and it's going to form a little, like a knot. And uh, then we can go in and remove it if we have to. I said, okay. He said, but if we get, if we get plug off all the holes, we won't have to, we can leave it. It, it may still even partially function. I said, okay. I said, so what are the, what are the chances? What are the risks? Well, there's always a risk with surgery. With the embolization, you've got a 50-50 shot that he makes it off the table. Okay. 
What about after that? He said, well, I mean, if we, if we get it all, um, again, he's got a 50, 50 shot of living another 10 years. Okay. Well, where are you getting these numbers, doc? Well, we've been doing this for about 10 years, about 50, 50% of the people are, you know, still around just with the embolization. Okay. All right. I'll, I mean, I'll take those chances. What do we do? What happens if we do nothing? He'll be dead in two weeks. Well, then let's do the surgery. Cause if you're telling me my husband's going to be dead in two weeks, we're going to do the surgery. He's like, but mind you, um, some of the other risks, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that can happen when you mess around in the brain. He can be paralyzed. He can have significant long-term and short-term memory loss. Um, he can lose his speech. He can, you know, it'll, it could be like he had a stroke. He could be a complete vegetable or he could be perfectly fine. So doubtful he'll be perfectly fine, but we'll try. Okay. So he does the surgery, does the embolization and Mick comes out and the doctor's beaming, beaming with success. We got it all. I'm 99% sure we got everything. It's, you know, open and shut. Looks beautiful. No problem. Awesome. We're going to do six months of angiograms. So every, every month he's got to come in and do a cranial angiogram. They inject dye, like iodine into him, into his brain. And they take pictures of it to see if that blood is still seeping out soaker hose style in the middle of his brain where it's not supposed to. Um, Mick wakes up from the surgery and he said, no, they didn't get it all. I still hear bubbles in my head. I was like, dude, the doc said they got it all. He's like, nope, they didn't get it all. I still hear bubbles in my head. Okay. So they do the angiograms one after another. First five, beautiful. No problems, no bleeding, no issues. Looks great. Sixth and final one, doc comes back. He's like, yeah, so we didn't get it all. He's still bleeding, still bleeding out in his brain. I'm now six months pregnant because I got pregnant. Well, I guess I was five months pregnant because I got pregnant uh, while Mick was, you know, 30 days recovering from his first brain surgery from the, uh, the embolization because he got to spend 30 days at home recovering on medical um, after he was released from the hospital before he had to go back to Walter Reed Medhold. So I'm five months pregnant. I was already getting rather large and cranky. So they scheduled the surgery for October. Okay. Halloween, actually. The craniotomy, where they're going to go into his brain. They're going to take off a piece of his skull and go into his brain and remove the AVM that's now atrophied. And, you know, because they did get most of it. So it's mostly atrophied and formed this knot and they can just easily pull it out. Okay. So once again, I go through the whole questions with the doc, but now I'm much larger and much crankier. And I said, all right, doc, what are the chances? He said, well, again, 50-50 shot, he makes it off the table. Okay. Well, we got through that the last time. What about after that? And he said, he's got an 85% chance. He's like, I like 85% chance. No, no. He's got an 85% chance that he'll be dead in five years. Oh, well, that's a little different. Okay, where are you getting that number from, Doc? He said, well, we've only been doing this particular surgery for five years and everyone we've done it on so far is dead. Well, that sounds like 100% chance he'll be dead in five years. So um, where's the 15% come from? 
He said, God, prayer, hope, faith, whatever you want to call it, something beyond me. I said, okay, uh, you know what? I'll, I'll take those odds because I have more faith in God and in you um, that we're going to get through this. So go ahead. I said, what if we don't do it? He said, well, if we don't do it, he'll, he could drop dead at any moment, at any time. Just, he'll just, that blood vessel will burst and he'll have an aneurysm and he'll just drop dead. He could be walking down the street. He could be, you know, cooking dinner, um, driving a car. He could be doing anything. He'll just drop dead. I said, okay, so let's do the surgery and uh, we'll go from there. He said, again, this comes with other significant risks more significant than the last time. It is more than likely that he will be paralyzed. He will not be able to walk again. He may not remember you. He probably won't. He will have significant long-term and short-term memory loss. He will probably lose his speech. He will be like a stroke victim. He may be like an infant. And I said, you know what, doc? Let's do it. I have faith. Let's do it. So we did the surgery and as soon as Mick came out of it and mind you, um, he has no memory. He did lose 10 years at least. Uh, and uh, behind it and ahead of it. So um, he lost about 10 years back. And then there was quite a number of years post-surgery, three years post-surgery that he does not remember at all. <coughs> so he comes out of the surgery and he wakes up almost immediately and he's moving his arms and legs. And now I'm the size of a freaking house. I'm seven months pregnant. I weighed 185 pounds. You could put a six pack of beer, just rest it comfortably on top of my belly. I am the size of a freaking house. Okay. I have giant babies, giant babies. You could roll me down the freaking hallway. So, and I, I was living in the hospital and the nurses would try and send me home. Thank God Mick's aunt and uncle literally lived five minutes down the street from Bethesda hospital because I was able to stay there because being at the, uh, Navy house is $30 a day. That adds up really, really, really fast when you're looking at a, you know, six to eight week hospital stay minimum. Um, so I was very blessed that we could stay with them. Uh, but I really didn't leave the hospital. The nurses let, they were very generous and let me use their, like their private area and I could go take naps there and whatnot. Um, but I, I stayed there and Mick came out he was in ICU, obviously. Well, hold on. Let me tell you the story of during the actual brain surgery. So while he's in brain surgery and it's a long surgery, there's all this commotion. There's all this hubbaloo. Like all of a sudden there's some, all some crazy shit going in the hospital. I have no idea what's going on. Um, but you know, like when something big happens and there's just like this frantic energy, and I felt it and I'm like, what? Everyone felt it, you know, like all of a sudden, like there's this craziness. Well, they're willing Bob Woodruff in 
the reporter who got blown up in Iraq. And they brought him to Bethesda for the best neurosurgeon in the world, our neurosurgeon, Dr. Rocco Manda, to work on his brain. Literally, while he has his hands in Mick's brain, they pull him to go work on this fucking reporter. No. Oh, I was furious. I was seven months pregnant and I was pissed. But that's okay. Because he had, I mean, it wasn't like he was the only neurosurgeon in there. There was a team and they were an excellent team. Um, and uh, our, who's become our good friend, um, called Dr. Randy. Dr. Randy finished up. So uh, Mick wakes up in ICU. For me to get into ICU now is a freaking disaster because there are reporters clogging up the entire hallway and they don't give a shit about the soldiers that are in there. They're just there for their reporter, right? They're just there for their guy. They don't care about the, all these guys that are missing limbs or they've had half their heads blown off or um, whatever that, that no, they don't give a shit about that. All they care about is Bob Woodruff and they are thronged in front of the ICU. And I literally with my huge pregnant belly cannot get through them. I lost my shit. I screamed at them. I'm sure there's a video out there somewhere of crazy, crazy pregnant lady tells off reporters in Bethesda hospital. I lost my shit on them. And then I marched my big fat belly right over to the executive assistant to the commandant, the woman who actually ran the hospital. And I got every single reporter thrown out of the hospital. And to this day, they are still not to re not allowed to report inside Bethesda hospital. They have to report from the helicopter pad, like from the lawns way out. They cannot come in the hallways. So they're not allowed to set foot inside. So, um, anyway, so Mick wakes up in the ICU and mind you, the ICU is full of full of soldiers that are all alone. Not that they don't have families. It's just, they're so young. I mean, they're, they're babies. I, I wasn't that old. I was 26, but they're 18, 19, 20. And their wives are just as young with infants on their hips. They can't afford to fly to DC and with an infant or drive to DC with an infant and spend six, eight, 10 weeks in a hospital at for $30 a day, if they can even get into the Ronald McDonald house or the Navy house or whatever it is. Um, so again, we were blessed. We had a lot of family in the area. You know, my, my parents were in Connecticut, Mick's parents were in Connecticut. Um, everybody came down all the time. We had friends in DC. So we set up a schedule and cause Mick could only have one visitor at a time in the ICU. So we made sure he was never alone. And then anyone else that was there, we'd go through the ICU and we would sit with the other soldiers and read them letters from their families or just talk to them, hold their hands, just give them some kind of, tell them that someone cared. Um, so that was how we spent our time in the ICU. And uh, Mick was there for a while, but as soon as he woke up, he was moving his arms and legs. So I knew, I knew that he was going to be okay. And he took one look at me and he said, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean? What am I doing here? I'm your wife. He goes, what, what, you're, what about Elena? I said, that dumb cunt, you got rid of her. He goes, and I married you? And he was so thrilled. He was so happy. I said, yeah, babe. 
So thank God. But he didn't remember. He didn't, he didn't remember anything. And he looked at my belly and he said, that's our kid. I said, yeah, that's our son. He's due in a couple months, pretty soon. Um, and, and it was, uh, it was a challenge, but pretty quick, about three days after he woke up, um, I walked into his room in the morning and he looked at me and he's cranky. So I knew he was getting better because he was cranky. And he said, I got to pee, hand me the bedpan. I said, no, get your ass out of bed and go walk to the bathroom. I know you can do it. You can move your arms and legs. The smell of your urine makes me sick. Everything makes me sick right now. I cannot handle you basically peeing on me anymore. Get your ass out of bed and go walk to the fucking bathroom and pee like a big boy because I cannot be taking care of two infants. I'm sorry. I'm not playing that game. And he bitched up a storm. He bitched me up and down. You fucking cunt. You dumb bitch. This, that, and the other cussing me out. But he got out of bed. And of course, I called the nurse and we helped him. And we helped him walk, but he got out of bed and he went to the bathroom. And that was a huge step. It was a huge step. And, uh, and then we couldn't keep him down. And then they put him in physical therapy and they gave him a walker. Okay. They gave Mick a walker because he couldn't feel his right leg. And it started with his foot. So right off the bat, he couldn't feel his foot right off the surgery. I mean, immediately, like nothing. They stuck an 18 gauge needle in his heel, like right where his, where your, your nerve is right there at the bottom of your foot, that super sensitive spot, an 18 gauge needle. I mean, they buried it all the way up there and he didn't even move, buried it to the bevel, nothing. Anybody else would have been on the ceiling, nothing. So, um, so we were in physical therapy. But they let him go home. I mean, not home, home, but to his aunt's house because it was right down the street. So we go home and he is on, I don't even know how many different pills. I had to make an Excel spreadsheet because he had to take so many different pills at so many different times. And I am allergic to everything. I'm allergic to all synthetics. I'm highly allergic to all opiates. Uh, I can't even touch them with my bare hands. I'll break out in hives. I cannot ingest them or I'll die. So I, I would have to like sprinkle his pills into a, a, a cup and hand them to him or hold them with plastic gloves or, you know, and keeping track of it was a lot. Um, at one point there were two dozen pills that he had to take every day, but so many pills really, really fucked up his system. And one day. About two weeks after they let him out of the hospital and he was still living with his aunt and uncle. We were still living with his aunt and uncle. Mind you, now I'm four months or four weeks away from giving birth. Um, he uh, starts throwing up. Like we ate a tuna sandwich for lunch. It was good. I had no problem with it. He starts throwing up. He can't stop. I mean, like I put a bucket in, in front of him. It's just yellow and green bile. It's horrible. So we bring him to the emergency room at Bethesda and they, they like freak out cause he's thrown up and they send him outside to the curb because they're afraid that he's got some crazy infectious disease or something. Right. They send him out to the curb and then they forget about him cause it's shift change apparently. 
So anyway, after I see everyone leaving and everyone else coming in, I'm like, are you going to help my husband? Like, what the fuck's going on here? He's just had brain surgery in this hospital. And now we're in the emergency room and you guys won't even see him and he can't stop throwing up. Like, what the fuck? So I threw fit. They get him through the emergency room. They put him in a room with someone who does have a highly contagious infectious disease, like the flu, COVID, like she's coughing, sneezing. I mean, it was before COVID, but you know, that's what it was like, like putting someone in a room, putting a brain surgery patient in a room with someone who has a highly infectious respiratory illness is not a good idea. So anyway, um, they take him to do x-rays and CAT scans. Again, we're going through the whole rigmarole of tests so they can figure out why he's throwing up. They give him fenugrin, uh, which should just knock him out and not, he, I mean, he shouldn't be thrown up. And yet halfway down the hall, he's like, stop, pull over on a stretcher. Um, they're like, what? I'm going to throw up. No, no, you're not. You just had fenugrin. Oh no, he did G- green bile all over the floor because he had pancreatitis because they gave him so many different big pharma drugs that his pancreas started eating itself. Okay. So, um, so we get through that. So they wean him off of some of those drugs, which was a very tiny bit of a blessing. And we go home, 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 home to Savannah. Cause I'm about to give birth and my mom comes down. Thankfully I, well, thankfully I'm whatever. I went a week and a half late, almost two weeks. And, uh, so we, we're going home because the last thing, I mean, all the, the entire Bethesda hospital is absolutely completely freaking out that I'm going to go into labor, like in ICU or in the hallway or something, right? With the stress of brain surgery, I'm seven months pregnant, running around the damn hallways of Bethesda, telling off reporters with this giant belly. And like, they're like, your stress level, like there's no way you're going to make it to term with this baby. Oh no, no, no. We went 41 and a half weeks. It was no joke. And he he was not small. So my mom comes down because um, I'm hugely pregnant. Mick's not entirely an invalid, but, you know, he's learning to walk again. Um, he threw the walker out the first day and got a cane, and then they put him on crutches um, until he could figure out how to balance on his foot again. Because as he's put it, he was like Mr. Deeds, right? He could see it. He could walk on it. He just couldn't feel it. So he once dropped a table on it and it like split his foot, but he couldn't feel it. He once got bit by a black widow spider and he cut the infection ball out of his leg and he couldn't feel it. He eventually got to the point where he lost feeling all the way up to almost to his groin in his right leg. And he was starting to lose feeling in his hands. Like his fingertips are going numb uh, on the right side. Um, but I digress. So my mom comes down cause I'm going to give birth and we go shopping, right? Cause I'm, I'm late. I'm always late. I'm always late for everything. It's amazing. I got the show off on time today. Um, so we go and we, we walk everywhere. We walk all over Savannah 
Uh, we drive up and down the cobblestone streets trying to bounce the baby out of me. I'm eating eggplant Parmesan for dinner every night. I mean, you know, my mom's like telling Mick, hey, you know, I can you get it up with all those drugs in you? Because you, you stepped up to the plate nine months ago, 10 months ago. Now it's time to bat it out of the park. Literally. Okay. And uh, so we go, my mom and I go shopping. I'm due to be induced the next day. And it's like midnight. I got new sheets. We got an entertainment center. We, we probably spent like 10 grand, no joke. And uh, I put new sheets on the bed. Mick looks at me. He goes, you're not going into labor tonight. Pops to Ambien, gets in bed. I get in bed and my water breaks on the brand new sheets. Cause that's how that happens. I'm like, son of a bitch. My water just broke. He looks at me. He's like, you're crazy. I'm like, am I, uh, th- what do you think? I peed the bed. My water just broke. He's like, holy shit. We got to go to the hospital. I'm yelling. Okay. It's two o'clock in the morning now. I'm like, I got to take a shower before we go anywhere. Any of you ladies that have ever been pregnant, your water breaks, like, which only happens in about 30, 30% of pregnancies anyway. Um, I, I got to take a shower. Okay. Before we go anywhere. Cause I don't know when the next time I'm gonna be able to take a shower is I can take a shower, but I'm just going into labor. Like this baby ain't coming out anytime soon. I got at least 12 hours taking a shower. So I take my shower and we get in the car. My mom refuses to let Mick drive because he just t- popped to Ambien. So I'm in her car and he's behind us in our new car. Cause we had to buy a new car because he couldn't feel his right foot. And we had always drove manual transmission vehicles at that, to that point. But because he couldn't feel his foot, we had to switch to automatic, which sucked. So, uh, anyway, so we're driving to the hospital. We're driving to Fort Stewart hospital where I'm supposed to have the baby where I'm supposed to be induced. It's like an hour away. Okay. And I don't know how to get there from the front side. I only know to go in the back way, which is closed at two o'clock in the morning. So I'm on the phone with the MPs because they're the only ones I can think of at Fort Stewart at two o'clock in the morning who can give me fucking directions, right? So I call the MPs and I'm like, hey, I'm coming in. I'm in labor. I need to get to the hospital and I don't know how to get there. And they're like, I'm so what? Okay. I'm on my way there. I'm coming from Wilmington Island. I'm in labor. It's okay. My contractions are like six minutes apart. Like I'm, I'm good. I just, I need directions. I don't know how to get there. So they give me directions and they're like, we'll meet you at the front gate and we'll escort you to the hospital. Sounds good. Well, this guy obviously wasn't married and didn't have any kids. Cause I get to the front gate. We get to the front gate. Okay. And he's like, are you the lady that's having a baby? I was like, yeah. And he's like, let's go. And he proceeds to tear through Fort Stewart doing like 70 miles an hour. Lights and sirens blaring. It's all we could do. My mom is driving. It's all we can do to follow him and keep up to get to the damn hospital. Mick's behind us. He just took two Ambien. He has to drive an hour. And now all of a sudden, and the man just had fucking brain surgery, you know, seizure alert. And there's lights and sirens going all over. And we're flying through Fort Stewart at 70 miles an hour. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm going to have this baby a lot faster than I thought. Anyway, so we get to the hospital. And uh, 21 and a half hours later. Yeah. 21 and a half hours later, I finally gave birth. Um, they were going to end up cutting me and I was like, no, 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 baby, you got to come out right now. So he did back labor, sunny side up. Um, nine, one, 22 inches long. He's a giant baby. 
he's now six one at sixteen, so you know he's a giant child. Um, and Mick cut the cord six weeks after brain surgery. He was right there. He was right there the whole time. In fact, he didn't want to be there. And I told him that if he wasn't in the room, when I came out of the room, I would be filing divorce because damn Skippy, he was going to be in that room because he wasn't, he was definitely, he was going to see his eldest child born without a doubt. No doubt in my mind. You know what he saw? He saw roast beef. That's, that's what he equated it to. He saw this giant head coming out of something that it was way too small for it to come out of. And he said, there's no way that she's ever going to feel that ever again. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was a long time before we had another child. Um, so before a long, it was a long time before we tried to have another child because he, all he saw was roast beef. So anyway, um, Hmm. Okay. I think. It's time for a smoke break. What do you guys think? Should we do a little Justin tribute here? Although I haven't gotten to the Justin part of the story yet. The story takes a long time. Smoke break, anyone? Let's do it. I don't have the bong because I think Mick has the bong. He does, but that's okay because I got the pipe. So smoke it if you got it. Because the next part of the story gets even wilder. Energy Matrix, I am very jealous that you delivered all six of your kids at home. That's freaking amazing. I wish I'd known now. Or I wish I'd known then what I know now. Um, of course, uh, Connor was so freaking big that um, that could have been difficult. Although maybe a water birth at home would have been easier. Um, because I'm allergic to all drugs, it wasn't like I had an epidural or anything like that anyway. So, uh, you know, it was just my mom, Mick, and the doctors, and honestly, I could have done it at home with just my mom and Mick. Oh, there's the bong. Well, I am an idiot. Thanks, babe. There's Mick coming in to tell me I do have the bong. What do you know? But I think he cashed it, so that's okay. We'll keep smoking the pipe because I know it's fully packed. Freshly packed. Uh, Energy Matrix. You can find Justin videos uh, here on the Foxhole on Cannabis and Combat, uh, except for his last video because every time we broadcast the Cannabis and Combat Foxhole, it overwrites the last one. But all the other ones are on there. Um, you can also go to Cannabis and Combat on Rumble and find it there. So um, he he put some amazing content out. All right. Energy Matrix, I gotcha. It wasn't you. It was your wife. And the baby. Six kids, though. Um, we wanted six kids. 
honestly. But uh, it didn't work out that way. And I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. Don't turn back on the wolf pack. All right. Okay, I feel better now. Uh, all right. So after Connor was born, uh, Mick got to spend 30 days at home recovering from surgery because that's how they roll it in the army. And then he went back up to Walter Reed. He went to Medhold, Walter Reed Medhold. And those, uh, the people that we stayed with when we got engaged, sort of, on the way down to the Outer Banks, actually took him in and let him live with them for four years. Amazing people, amazing family. Um, they took him in like their fifth son, their fourth son. Yeah, they've got three kids. Um, I shouldn't, I've known them my entire life. But uh, in fact, I kind of dated their oldest son a little bit, who's one of Mick's best friends now, um, and our lawyer. But anyway, um, so they took him in and uh, he had to report every day. Um, but basically all he did was wheel people from appointment to appointment and he got bored, right? Cause he's pretty mobile, even though he was post brain surgery. Once we got him walking, I mean, he was pretty good. So, but his roommate in the hospital initially before he got out had lost half his brain. I'm not even kidding about that. And you guys have seen this person. You saw him on the Wounded Warrior Project commercials when it first came out. Nice guy, missing half his brain, literally missing half his head. Um, that was Mick's roommate in the hospital. And, you know, they were not, they were not prepared. They were not prepared for all these guys coming back from Iraq, not dead, honestly, not dead. They were expecting them to die, I think. They, don't, they were not prepared for them to come back so wounded, but not dead. So you have all these guys that they don't know what to do with. So they're just med holding them out. When Mick got there, there had never been a soldier that re-enlisted out of Walter Reed Med Hold. Not a one. Every soldier that went to Reed, Walter Reed Medical Hold Company, like you went there to med board out. That's it. You're getting out. There's no ifs, ands, or buts you're getting out. Well, Mick didn't like that. Um, yeah, I challenge him. I dare you every time. So anyway, so his roommate uh, in the hospital, of course, they kept in touch. Um, the guy with half a brain. And uh, all these guys that he's wheeling from appointment to appointment that just, they needed more help. So some of them got together and they founded the Wounded Warrior Project. Um, Mick was one of the driving forces behind that. And uh, which is, it was an incredible organization before it got co-opted by corporate and whatever. But when they started, it was an incredible organization. Um, and, but Mick was bored. So he went and he got a job at the Pentagon on a general staff. Um, 
in logistics operations, um, finding people, basically, the logistical side of finding people in country, working out of the Pentagon. And having just come out of brain surgery and being at Walter Reed Medical Hole Company. And he spent some time there. And then he comes to me and he tells me that um, he has a choice. His his med board date is coming up and no one had ever re-enlisted out of Walter Reed med hold. So he can fight it. He knows the law. He knows the army law. He knows the statute. He's fifth generation and all the ones before him were freaking generals. He knows everybody. He knows everybody in the army. Um, so he can fight it, but did he want to? And that was really a tough question. Did he want to? Did he want to stay in? And he put that decision on me. He said, I don't know what to do. I've dedicated 10 years of my life to serving this country. If I get out now, I don't know what to do. But I don't know if I can stay in. I don't know if they'll let me. What do I do? And I looked at him and I said, well, let's see. You don't have a college degree. The only thing you're good at is shooting people and the mob's not hiring. So I guess you best stay in. It's your life. It's what you know. And how are you going to let someone tell you you can't do something? How are you going to let someone tell you you have to do something you don't want to do? You, you can't tell Mick that he can't do something. He will do everything in his power to prove you wrong. It doesn't matter what it is. You tell Mick that he can't do something, he'll do it every fucking time, without a doubt. So he did. He fought. He fought for the right to stay in. He went before the med board and he fought for the right to change his MOS and stay in. And he won. And then they didn't know what to do with him. Because you have this guy who's had brain surgery, still has regular seizures. He's on all these medications. He's got a 1-1 profile, which means he can't jump. <coughs> and yet he's one of the best trained soldiers around. Um, while we were preparing for our wedding, he he went through, I mean, he, he went through qualifications. Um, he uh, he took that special course. He didn't quite make it. They rolled him out. They told him he was a little too crazy um, or maybe not crazy enough, but they invited him to come back. We'll get to that later. Um, but he's, he's one of the best trained soldiers in the army. So they didn't really want to lose that either. So he stayed in and they moved him. They changed him. They, they sent him to school. Now, mind you, before Mick's brain surgery, he was pretty severely dyslexic. He covered up pretty well. Um, but he had serious difficulty reading and writing. His brain surgery, however, cured his dyslexia. It's one good thing it did. Whatever they did scrambling in his grape up there, uh, all of a sudden, the, the letters didn't jumble up on the page the way they used to anymore. They, they stayed still. So I got to teach him to read and write. I basically, because I was an English major in college, I, I basically taught him 
how to, you know, write a thesis paper. Um, I mean, he, you know, had knew how to read, obviously knew how to write, but it was kind of like, as he put it, caveman, chicken scratching on a wall. Um, so, uh, I taught him to read and write and they sent him to school and he changed his job and he went intelligence. Oh shit. So when he graduated from intelligence school, I told him that he was no longer a moron. Now he's an oxymoron. I told you guys that last night. So, um, they sent him after he won, um, and after school, they sent him to some place that they said would not deploy. They had not deployed in years and they were essentially non-deployable. And he gets there and they almost immediately get orders to deploy. That was Fort Hood, Texas. Um, or maybe they had just come home from deployment so they weren't going to deploy again for at least two years. But as soon as they got there, he got orders to deploy. So now he's going back to Iraq. The first two times he's gone to Iraq, he's gotten seriously injured, like almost died, right? The first time he got blown up, got 28 pieces of shrapnel in him, lost 60% of his hearing in one ear, 40% in the other. Um, that was when he came and found me. The second time then, they end, and he ended up having that brain surgery and he could still be dying at any moment, right? 85% chance he'll be dead in five years. Um, and we're four years in. So, and he's going back to Iraq. So he's pretty freaking sure that he's going to die, right? I mean, in his head, he's got what less than one year to live per the doctor's. And he's going back to Iraq that he's been seriously fucked up the first two times he went. Um, so right before he left, we went on vacation to the Outer Banks. And uh, he did absolutely everything he could to make me hate him. I'm talking, he shot me with a fucking BB gun. Okay. He was the biggest stick on the planet. He pushed every button I had and he knew where every single one of them are because we'd known each other for most of our lives. Right. He made me despise him. And I was, I was done. You know what? I'd gotten him through brain surgery. I'd gotten him through, I'd stood by him through all of this. And now he's going to be a complete fucking dick to me. Are you kidding me? No, no, I'm not putting up with it. But I also can't divorce him right before he's going to deploy or while he's deployed because no. So he left and he didn't die. And then he came home and I served him with divorce papers or I told him that I wanted a divorce. And he freaked out because, uh, you know, holy shit, he didn't come home in a box. He was still alive. We had hit that five year mark. You know, a lot of people have trouble at their five-year mark. Ours was kind of epic. So uh, he started courting me, kind of the old school way. Well, first, first he told me that if I really want a divorce, we had to get permission from the army. 
that I had to go see a colonel. And I was like, I don't give a shit who I have to see. Sign me up, make an appointment, tell me when and where to be, and I will be there. And so he did. And I showed up there, and it was a marriage counselor. He tricked me into marriage counseling. Okay. Um, and she proceeded to tell him that he was a complete asshole and it was all his fault, which I thought was great. Okay, great. And then he showed up at my work in a limo on our anniversary and took me out to buy a nice dress and took me out dancing and, you know, took me, took me to dinner. Um, and, uh, yeah, straight courted me, dated, dated me. Like we'd never dated to that point. We never dated shit. He'd never even proposed to me. He actually, the first time he asked me to marry him was five years after we got married. He asked me to marry him again. I said, no. Yeah. I said, no, but he forced me to fall in love with him again. Right. And I was done. And you women know when we're done, like we're done, like it's over. Like when you're done, there's no, you don't go back. And yet he did. We did. He literally forced me to fall in love with him all over again. That fucking dick. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Um, and then I got pregnant again. So obviously it worked. Liam was born. Actually, I got pregnant after Mick's five-year expiration date. Um, and I gave birth after his expiration date. So we like to call Mick our, or we like to call Liam our miracle baby. And uh, when he was born, that was a rough one. Uh, I have never been, I, I am not good pregnant, by the way. Um, I am sick from like day six, seriously. Like I start throwing up right off the bat and I throw up the entire way through. I cannot keep anything down with this one because the first one was so big. I had gestational diabetes and, uh, I, so I couldn't eat anything white. I couldn't have sugar, flour, nothing. Right. Um, and yet I was still, my belly was like out here because he was gigantic. So from the back, you couldn't tell I was pregnant and from the front. Like, I, I mean, I was literally out to here. Like it was, it was no joke. Um, at the beginning I gained some weight. But then after I got diagnosed with di diabetes and I couldn't eat anything, I lost all that weight. I actually lost 20 pounds while I was pregnant um, on the diabetes diet. And then after I gave birth, I weighed less than I did when I got pregnant. Um, but I didn't actually give birth to him. They had to cut him out of me because he was Frank Breach. <coughs> so, and mind you, at this point, um, Mick had, well, I guess I should back up. So after... Texas. Um, after that deployment, when Mick came home and he came home alive, he actually came home right at the time of the Fort Hood massacre, like the day of the Fort Hood massacre. And he was being debriefed at the time. 
Um, but because of what happened there, they gave him then his choice of assignments and he chose to come home to Savannah. Um, plus he had to save our marriage. So that's how he was able to court me again. So he was transferred here. At that point, our son had spent a total of six weeks with his father, our oldest son, who is now five or four. Um, he'd spent six weeks with his father and not all at once, you know, here and there, just a day, a, a, a long weekend, a, a week on, you know, vacation. Um, but not a significant amount of time. He did not even know who his father was. So Mick came home and, uh, and I got pregnant. Okay. And so he was home through the whole pregnancy. He was not home when I was pregnant with Connor. He was up in DC, right? He'd come home on the weekends or I'd go up there on the weekends. Um, but he was home now. He got to live with me while I was pregnant. He got to live with me every day when I threw up constantly, when I had gestational diabetes, when I had varicose veins in places you don't even want to talk about. When I was so sick that he actually went out and got weed for me. Like that's how bad it was. And this is what, this is when Mick was active duty. He did not smoke and did not approve of me smoking, but I was so sick. He went out and got weed for me. Um, and, uh, and then they had to cut him out of me because Liam was Frank breach. So his, his head was up here under my rib cage and his feet were over here under my rib cage and his butt was in my cervix and not, he was not turning and he was not moving and he was almost 10 pounds. Um, so they had to cut him out of me. But when they did that, like I told you, I'm allergic to everything. I was good. They gave me beta blocker. Couldn't really feel anything. I mean, you feel a little bit, but not too much. And they cut him out of me and, and, um, they pulled him out and they, they initially it's a teaching hospital and they grabbed the arm and he goes, no, 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 you don't, you don't want that. Put that back. We got to get the head out first. Right. Um, and then they found a leg and like his butt came out a little bit. No, 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 no. Uh, but because of the way he was turned, they actually ended up pulling him out feet first. So his butt hit the air. And then the doctor said, now getting the head out is kind of, it's more of an art form than a science. And he pulls him out and he goes, I've been doing this for 25 years. This is the biggest head I've ever seen on a newborn. But because his butt hit the air first, he tried to take that good deep breath and his head was still inside. So he sucked in amniotic fluid and he ended up with infant pneumonia and they rushed him to the NICU, the NICU because he registered as a three on the APGAR scale. So you have this baby that's 9-11, 22 inches long, almost two feet long with the head of size of a fucking cannonball and he's blue, right? He's blue and mixed there the entire time. But, um, and, and he's, he's blue. Um, and so Mick's going with the baby, right? And they start pulling, putting everything back in. Because when they take the baby out, they have to take all your other, your innards out too. So they start putting everything back in. And now I can feel a little bit more. I mean, I wasn't screaming in pain. I was like, eh, eh, right? Just kind of, eh. And the one doctor looks at the anesthesiologist and nods at him. 
And that's the last thing I remember for three days because they gave me white lightning or something. I'm malignant hypothermic. So my body temp, I'm malignant hypothermic. My body temperature dropped drastically to like 80 degrees. And um, I lost a shit ton of blood as well because I'm splayed wide open. And now I'm having a seizure because I'm allergic to the fucking drugs they gave me. And they, I told them I was allergic to it and they gave it to me anyway. Like I can handle a little pain. It's not a big deal. Just get the fucking alien out of my belly and sew me back up, staple me shut and I'm good to go. No, they had to try and put me out because God forbid anyone ever experience any pain. I'd rather have had the pain. Um, so it took them a, a while apparently three days, according to Mick, to wake me back up, um, to get my body temperature back regulated, uh, to get my blood pressure back regulated and for me to wake up. And I woke up and I said, where's my baby? And they said, he's in the NICU. I said, well, then take me to the NICU. And Mick's like, baby, you can't, you can't get that. No, you can't get out of bed. Like you can't even, you can't even walk. I was like, fuck the fuck. I can't get me out of bed. I want to go see my baby. And Mick, God bless that man. He went and found a wheelchair. He went out in the hallway and he said, my wife wants to go see her baby. I need a wheelchair. And the nurses said, no, she can't get out of bed. No, she can't leave. No, she can't get up. She can't walk. And he said, the fuck she can't. And he went and stole a wheelchair from somewhere. And he came back into the room with the wheelchair and he took all the bells and whistles off of me and he put my IV bag on the, the hanging thing on the back of the wheelchair and the nurses come running in. And they're like, this is a security concern, blah, blah, blah. And I don't give a fuck about your concern, your, con your security concern. We're going to the NICU. And he picked me up out of bed and he put me in the wheelchair and he wheeled me down to the NICU and he took me to see my baby. My mom was with the baby. And, uh, and he made a rule that I could not walk down the hall by myself, like without holding on to the wheelchair until I could get out of bed by myself. Okay. And that took a couple of days, but I insisted I was up and walking. I did not want any of their pain pills. I did not want any of their drugs. No, they already tried to fucking kill me. I'm not playing that game again. I just wanted to see my baby. And Mick was right there at my side the entire time, right there. <coughs> And, uh, so now, however, right after I had Liam, um, and I'm recovering from childbirth and I was very, very blessed, very blessed that we made it work that I was able to stay home with our babies for the first year of each of their lives. It, it wasn't easy. Um, the first year that our oldest child was born was when Obama shut down the government and we didn't get paid and Mick was in the hospital and I couldn't pay the mortgage. Um, but we worked it out. We made it work, right? We, we stuck through it. Um, but then all of a sudden Mick starts being like, he's in pain. And when Mick's in pain, he's a bear, right? He's, he's an ass when he's in pain. Like it's, it's no joke. He's in serious pain. So we go to the hospital or we go to the doctor. Um, we actually went back up to 
Bethesda up to neurosurgery. And uh, again, it's past his expiration date. And we see his original neurosurgeon who is absolutely shocked that Mick is still alive. Like, holy shit. Amazing. Right. And we go see it. Go see him. Well, in that initial incident, when Mick broke his helmet and broke his head, um, he actually, he also compressed his spine like it was a freaking accordion. And when it stretched back out again, some of the discs were compromised. So he blew a disc in his neck. Um, so then he had to have surgery. So now I have an infant and he's going back in for neck surgery, which neurosurgery, but neck surgery. Um, so, uh, we go, we go back up there and they actually find when they take this disc out and we talk about what they're going to do, he'd blown two discs. So they're putting a, a stand. They'd never done it before. Um, or yeah, he was the third person. So they hadn't been doing it for very long. A, uh, a stacked titanium three-dimensional double disc, right? They've re they're replacing part of his spine with metal. Okay. So when they go in and they take out the disc that's blown, they actually found, and I, it's just amazing. They found that there was a tiny sliver of bone piercing the nerve in his shoulder from when the disc blew. This tiny sliver. You know what it's like to have like a needle in one of your nerves all the time, all the time, all the time, just constant pain. So they pulled that out and his mood got better. Um, and, uh, cause you know, he wasn't in as much pain and they replaced the discs in his neck and, um, then he blew the disc above it and we ended up having to have to go back for surgery and, uh, they actually moved the three-dimensional stainless steel disc up one and fused the one below it so he could still have rotation. Um, but we started working out together. We were doing insanity together. We got back in shape together, him recovering from neck surgery, me recovering from having given birth the second time. Um, so we got back in shape together. It was great. And, uh, and then, and this was, again, during the Obama years. And the government didn't even have money for bullets. There were no more PCSs. This is when sequestration came down. Okay. And we were like, sweet. Now we're, I mean, we're, we're eyeing mixed retirement, right? He's like, no more PCSs. Like I'm going to be able to retire out of Savannah. This is amazing. Fantastic. I'm happy. I'm here. I'm good. Like we can stay together. We can raise our family together. I won't have to deploy anymore. Like this is fantastic. Everyone else hated sequestration. We were happy for it. Sequestration was great. Until Mick got assigned. He got orders to PCS. And we're like, wait, how, how can this be? We're in the middle, of, we're in sequestration. You're, you can't even get live ammo to go to the freaking range. The government is so broke and you're going to move him to North Carolina? What the fuck? 
Um, and we, we pulled all those cards. We called all those people, everyone that we'd called the first time, all the way up to the undersecretary of the army. And we could not, could not get him relocated because he was the only soldier that was qualified. Um, that was also an intelligence officer that had combat experience that was at his rank and grade in the entire army. Um, so they moved him to Bragg, which is about four hours away. So initially, and now I was back to work at this point. Um, again, I stayed home with the babies for a year and then, you know, Mick looked at me and said, all right, go get a job. You need something outside of a baby, you know, absolutely. Um, and the extra income helps, but, uh, so I'm at work and, and he says, uh, he gets these orders to move to Breck. And uh, my initial response is, well, of course I'm going to move with you. What else are we going to do? Right. I mean, we're, we've come so far. And then reality set in. We're underwater on our house. We were underwater on our house at the time. Um, we have no support at Bragg. We have no friends or family or daycare or job or anything like that. So we made, and, and Andy's going to deploy because he's going SF, which means he's going to deploy almost constantly. So, um, so we made the conscious decision for me to stay in Savannah with the kids and him to go to Bragg. So we did. And he got there and he deployed. And um, he deployed. And he deployed. And I stayed home. And I don't know if you guys know what it's like to constantly live in limbo. To constantly live with this niggling idea in the back of your head that your husband is going to drop dead at any minute and then to deploy on top of that, right? I'd at that point been living with it for six years with the idea that seven years with the idea that Mick was, I mean, going to drop dead at any minute, but you get used to it. And then you throw special forces deployments on top of it. And what are you going to do? You got to get used to it. You just live in limbo all the time. Um, you just live one moment to the next, waiting for a phone call all the time. That's it. Waiting for a phone call. A phone call from him or a phone call from a chaplain. So, <coughs> um, And that, that went on for five, six years. Yeah. And then we're really, we're really, we're looking at Mick's retirement, right? Like it, it's coming up and he's like, I just, he's like, I'm, I'm getting my, my packet. Like I'm dropping my paperwork. I'm going to get my packet. Like I'm getting out I'm done 20 years. I'm done. And he goes and he asks her his retirement packet. And they tell him that he's got to serve one more year 
He's like, what do you mean I have to serve one more year? He said, uh, well, the year that you spent at Walter Reed, that didn't count. The year that you spent recovering from brain surgery because of a combat injury, even though you were working at the Pentagon, even though you helped found the Wounded Warrior Project, that year, that yeah, because you didn't receive an NCOER, that year didn't count and you have to serve another year. It's a year that didn't count. So, um, yeah. So he had to serve another year. Another year of waiting for those phone calls. And I'd watch the New York Times to see where he was. So like I'd see hand-to-hand combat in Syria and someone got, a woman got shot in the leg and I was like, oh, mix in Syria. I know where he's at. Okay. Then he'd call me a couple days later. I'd be like, hey, how's, how's the weather in Syria? He'd be like, how do you know I'm there? New York Times. That's how they put shit out. And then, uh, and then he finally did get to retire and he came home again and he said, I want to do one more tour. I got one, one more deployment. Look, the guys are getting ready to leave. Like I dropped my packet, but I can fit in one more tour. And I said, no, 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 you're done. You're out. You're done. No more tours. We're done. If you go on that last one, you won't come home. I'm telling you, I know I've seen it. I know if you go on this last, this last tour, this last mission, you're going to come home in a body bag. You're, you're not going to come. You're, you're going to die. I'm telling you right now. And so he stayed home. You knew I was serious. And, uh, he retired and the guy that took his place didn't make it. That survival guilt was something else too. So now Mick's retired. He's at home and uh, he's bored and he's dealing with survivor guilt. And he's still in pain all the time. And he's taking two dozen pills a day, right? For blood pressure and headaches and anti-seizure medication and anti-psychotic medication and, um, you know, and this for that and that for the other and Adderall and uh, Ativan. And I, I don't even know so many drugs, so many drugs. Um, and I made him get a job because he was driving me nuts and I was working full time and it's not easy to adjust from being in the military for your entire life to all of a sudden being a civilian. I know I'm pushing almost three hours here, so um, it's okay though. So transitioning was tough. There were some epic fights. There were some epic battles. And the fugue states, the the PTSD, the triggers. Um, you have to, you have to learn how to deal with them. Seizures. I learned to deal with pretty easy. I mean, they're not easy, but you learn how to deal with them. Then the mood swings, 
mood swings are difficult. You got to figure out how to deal with those. You got to learn how to stay calm. You got to learn how to not be triggered yourself. You have to understand that while he might be mad at you, he's not really mad at you. He's mad at everything. Just angry. So much anger all the time. Um, and so much pain, right? It didn't matter how many pills he took. He was always in pain. He threw the addictive pain pills away super early, partly because I'm so heavily allergic um, and partly because he was getting addicted and uh, switched to ibuprofen until he started literally bleeding out his asshole because he took so much ibuprofen. Didn't matter. So much pain all the time. And uh, our sex life was non-existent. Just there's so many drugs. And not the fun ones. And he got fired from being a cop and he got, you know, I told him to get a job when he got out so he'd get fired. I didn't mean from the good one. I meant like, go get a job at McDonald's and get fired. Not from the good job, but, you know, he got fired from being a cop. Then he went and became a firefighter and did that for a long time. Um, so every 24 hours or every 48 hours, he was out of my house for 24 hours. And that was good. That helped us both deal a lot, actually. Because uh, it was kind of like a, it's kind of like a halfway house for soldiers, right? When I mean, you still get to get out of your house every, for 24 hours, every couple of days and feel like you're back in, uh, in with the guys, having fun, doing stupid shit that could get you killed. And, uh, and then COVID hit. So... Mind you, Mick did not smoke. And how did we get here? Um, COVID hit really hard. You guys know that. And I got furloughed. And that was an interesting, uh, an interesting time. Because when COVID hit and I got furloughed, A, I was sick. And I weighed 185 pounds. I was huge, right? I was just fat. I ate processed food all the time. I was never out in the sun. I worked 15 hours a day. Um, I didn't really take care of myself. I didn't get to spend any time with my family. I just worked for someone else. I was a slave, a, a thousand percent a slave. And I did the best I could, but I was a slave. Um, that's really all there was to it. So COVID was a blessing because all of a sudden I could start taking care of myself and taking care of my family and taking care of my relationship because that was really suffering. Um, we were roommates. We were friends passing in the night, you know. I mean, we'd spend our whole lives together, but... You know, marriages have their ups and downs. And as long as you have that basis of friendship, you're good. But that that passion can flame and, and die. And you add all those drugs on top of it and it, it dies. Um, so, and honestly, I didn't, I didn't care because I didn't feel good about myself. But then I started feeling good about myself. Because I started taking care of myself. I started working out. 
I started doing insanity again. I started running. I started growing some of my own food. Um, cause I always like gardening. Like I, I grow, you know, I grow tomatoes, which didn't work at my old house. I grew peppers though. I grew a lot of peppers. Peppers did really well. Um, I started eating healthy because I was feeling better and I was losing weight and I wasn't craving sugar anymore. And, uh, I started making a lifestyle change and y'all know when mom goes on a diet, everyone in the house goes on a diet. But when I went on a diet, like I don't, I don't really believe in like dieting per se. Um, I, I like whole milk and real butter and bacon and, you know, but I like real food, but I started cooking real food, healthy food, food that's good for you, nutritious food. And, uh, we all started getting healthier. It's kind of amazing. And then I started giving Mick CBD because he was in so much pain all the time and he couldn't smoke and he was jealous of me smoking. So I tried to hide it from him sort of mostly unsuccessfully, but he pretended and I pretended. And, um, so I gave him CBD and that helped a lot. And then we started the podcast and that really brought us together in a way that we hadn't been in a very long time. And, uh, yeah. And then I renovated our entire house, our old house, and we sold it and we moved here and we made a full lifestyle change, a very full lifestyle change. So now you guys know that, um, you know, obviously Mick couldn't feel his foot and that was a rough one. And um, he was in so much pain all the time and that was even rougher. But after we moved here and he quit the fire department because... Um, the last real bad episode that he had of PTSD, stroke, seizure, fugue state, I don't, I don't even know, um, anger. He came into the studio and he, he asked me if he should quit the fire department. And I said, I don't know, that's on you. And he got really mad. He got really mad, he got really upset. I wasn't supportive of him and he wanted me to tell him to quit. And I'd already told him, quit if you want. It's a long drive. It's like an hour each way. Um, but he wanted to hear it from me and he didn't. And something triggered him that day. And it triggered him so bad that he had a heart attack. A minor one but he had a heart attack and uh, I mean, we, my best Heather was here and we're arguing in the kitchen and he's screaming and carrying on and he stormed off and went into the bedroom. And I, I heard this thud and I was like, you know, fuck just leave, fucking leave him there. 
honestly. Just fucking leave them there. I'm done. Just fucking leave them there. And then I, I go in, I calm myself down and I go in and after a few minutes and he is passed out on the floor next to the bed, half in the laundry basket. And, um, I, I mean, unconscious, uh, uh, seriously unconscious. And I could not get him to wake up. And I, I called Connor, come help me get him, move him, get him off the laundry basket, um, get him on the floor. And, uh, he stopped breathing for a while. I got him breathing again. And normally when he has some kind of episode, it's never been that bad. Um, when I threatened to call an ambulance, like he, he hates the EMTs because he had to work with them. That usually brings him back around. When I threaten to call an ambulance, that no, don't call the ambulance, right? It brings him back around. But this time there was there was nothing. I could I, there was he was completely unconscious. I barely had a pulse on him. Um, so I I called the ambulance, and they showed up, and uh, he woke up. They actually brought him back around with smelling salts, and his blood pressure was through the roof. It was just it was crazy, and. Um, but he refused to go to the hospital in the ambulance. So the next day he went to his doctor, mind you, he went to his doctor every 60 to 90 days because he had to get refills of all of his medications. And he would come home with a giant paper bag full of like 15 different bottles every, you know, two to three months. Cause some prescriptions were 60 days. Some prescriptions were 90 days, but, um, so, I, you know, he's like when he's the EMTs are showing up, I'm pulling bottle after bottle after bottle out of the bathroom to show them what he's on. Right. Like, I mean, it's a huge freaking bag. So the next day after that, he goes to the doctor and um, and they they run their tests once again. And they tell him he has. I don't know, some kind of, I call it a heart fart. I honestly don't know what it's called. Mix told you guys before. Um, and they had to do a, an ablation, right? Which is a very minor procedure. There is no minor procedure, but a very minor procedure. He, he took one day off of work and one day off the show. He didn't even tell his boss why. I just, I need the day off. Um, he took one day off of the show. We went up to Charleston to the VA and had this done. This ablation in his heart. But while he's up there in Charleston, he sees this doctor, this new doctor. Okay. And mind you, since we moved, he had all like, he had, this is right after we moved. So he hadn't switched doctors over yet from the islands to to here because we live an hour away from where we used to be. So it's technically different healthcare. So he had an appointment to go to the new doctors because he has to come up on his new prescription soon, but he hadn't been there yet when this happened. So he goes up to Charleston to the VA to get this heart thing done. And the doctor, of course, he brings all of his pills with him and the doctor looks at him and he goes, you're on what? You're on how many different medications? How many pills do you take a day? Mind you guys, this is just a year ago. This is a year ago. 
Just like take 24 pills a day. And most of them are to counteract the side effects of what he has already taken. Um, you know, what the necessary things are, the antipsychotic, the anti-seizure, the blood pressure. Um, the other the other ones were to counter all that. And the headaches. I gave him statins, f- fucking headaches. <coughs> um, and the doctor looks at him and he goes, what if I could get you off of just about all of those and replace it with one thing. And Mick goes, I'd say you're crazy. The hell are you going to get me to replace all this? The doc says, have you ever heard of Mary Juana? He said it just like that. You ever heard of Mary Juana? And Mick looks at him and he goes, doc, my wife's going to fucking love you. And they sent him home with an ounce of weed. Okay. Smoke this. Come back. You're going to have to take a drug test regularly. Now you come back to Charleston. You have to take drug tests regularly and we'll give you more. And mind you, it's shit weed. It's like straight out the cartels. It's fucking Mexican dirt weed, right? So Mick comes home with this weed. And I go, the doctor gave you what? He goes, they told me to smoke weed. I said, well, shit, babe, I've been telling you that for fucking years. So you listen to them. Now, mind you, we had just also started listening to Justin. I had met Justin in Dallas and uh, I got Mick to listen to Justin. And when the whole Clay thing, Clay Clark thing happened, like Mick just, he, he loved it. And I got them in touch. And the next thing I know, they're best friends and they're talking every day. And Justin's telling them the same thing. Okay. Um, so uh, he's like, just smoke weed, dude. So Mick starts smoking weed. Okay. Next thing I know, he's not taking anything. Now, I already had him on CBD. Justin had sent us the, the topical serious CBD because that definitely, that helped a lot with his pain in his shoulder um, and his lower back. He does still have some blown discs in his lower back, but we refuse to get them fixed because they have to go in through the, it's a, it's a mess to get the discs fixed in your lower back. It's, it's a mess. And his shoulders hanging on by a thread because, or his whole arm is actually hanging on by a thread because um, his collarbone broke as well in that initial incident. And when it healed, it healed wrong. And so it's been rubbing on the muscle for years and it rub it down, rub it down to basically nothing. So it's, I mean, it's hanging on by a, a shred, his shoulder is. That's why I, I put CBD, I lather his shoulders down every morning. Um, but Justin was sending him CBD. So switching him to weed, since he wasn't firefighting, since he had the heart attack, really wasn't that hard. Um, go for it, Energy Matrix. So, uh, so yeah, but anyway, I, we, I refused to let him smoke the shit, the crap that the VA was giving him. I was like, no, nah, no, nah, dude, no, I can get so much better shit than that. No, we're not smoking that crap. Absolutely not. No, dude, I wouldn't even let you smoke that shit in high school. We're smoking better than that. And, uh, that's when we started smoking on the show. Actually, he started smoking before he started smoking on the show. We started smoking on the show, obviously when Justin died, um, in tribute to him. But, uh, we might've hit a bowl or two before then. 
primarily with Justin. But then our dear friend out West, um, well, when Justin died and we went out to, of course, Mick went out to his funeral first, um, in Oregon and then to Vegas for the memorial because they were 10 days apart. So I could only, I could not take 10 days off from life, life on the homestead, the chickens and the ducks and the dogs and the kids and all that. I could go out for a long weekend. Um, but, uh, I, I couldn't go out for, you know, 10 days, but Mick could and should. So he flew out and, uh, he spent the week with James from We The People Radio. And James said, hey, you got to try this stuff. And he gave him some microdoses, some tincture. Now, mind you, when we had gone out to visit Justin in July, right before he died, um, he'd offered us at that point uh, microdose. Either He offered us either mushrooms or LSD. We took the LSD. Maybe we should have taken the microdose. Maybe we should have taken the mushrooms. It's okay though. Still a fun trip. But uh, he went out with James. He was out there with James for the week and James gives him the microdose. And all of a sudden, there's this thing on Mick's face that I hadn't seen in I don't even know how long. It's called a smile. I, I didn't even know his muscles worked like that anymore. He's sticking his head through the door right now, grinning at me, by the way. <laughs> I didn't even know those muscles in his face worked like that. He hadn't smiled in so long. And uh, I mean, it was, I was like, what is wrong with uh, your best friend just killed himself? I mean, it was, you know, in July and now we're in October, but I'm like, you're out there for the memorial. How can you have a fucking Cheshire cat grin on your face? I don't understand. What is wrong with you? Because James gave me this stuff. It's amazing. No shit, it's amazing. And uh, so James gave us a bottle to come home with. And then Megan sent us some more. And, uh, and some vitamins. And now, mind you, Mick had been off of all the big pharma drugs. And our sex life significantly improved significantly improved once he got off all the big pharma drugs. And now this ramped it up even more. Um, and then, so he's on microdosing the mushrooms every day for five months, right? And he's all of a sudden happy. Um, besides one little episode of fisticuffs with our child right after he turned 16, which apparently is a rite of passage, but I come from a family of predominantly women. So I don't know shit about that. Um, besides that, he's been like happy Mick. We've had no seizures. His blood pressure is better than it's been. And I don't even know how long, um, his, his anger is dissolved. It's gone. It's gone. I mean, you guys see him get angry on here, but angry 
No, like not the way he was, not all the time, not inside. He gets angry at the situations, but he's not just angry like he was. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden this happened. Right. And this was just a couple of weeks ago. This is the, the real deal. This is the pine needle. You're following from the base of the heel. Listen, base of the heel. You see your foot. So you feel. Right? Yeah. Because I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Yeah. Base of the heel. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. We're going to follow it right up, right up the tip. Seventeen years. Seventeen years. And then all of a sudden, one day, doing true spiracy, all of a sudden he got pins and needles back in his foot. And yeah, that video still makes me cry too. Um he got pins and needles back in his foot in the middle of the show. And he starts stomping his foot on the ground. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? It's like I can feel my foot. I said, No shit. No, you can't. Said, yeah. I can feel my foot again. 17 years. He couldn't feel his foot. And then all of a sudden feeling came back. And now it's, it's progressing. It's he's, he's got feeling all the way back up to his knee now, all the way back up to his knee, his knee that mind you, the last time he felt his knee was almost 20 years ago. You know what he's done to his knee in the last 20 years when he couldn't feel it. I can't wait till he gets to where he can feel the scar where he cut the uh, freaking um, black widow spider infection out. Yes. And Lyanna, now I do tickle his feet. Now I can tickle his feet to wake him up. So it's been an absolutely incredible, amazing journey. And, uh, but, and, and I, I fully credit the, the micro dosing on the psilocybin. Um, can I please reply that? Oh, can I please replay that? Yes, I will replay that. Here. This is the, the real deal. This is the pineapple nerve. You're following from the base of the heel. Listen, base of the heel. You see your foot, so you feel. Right? Yeah. Because I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Yeah. Base of the heel. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. We're going to follow it right up. Right up the tip. Uh -huh. Later. Later. Ow. Okay. okay. That's what you're looking for. Okay. okay. Now look, keep your jaw clear. I'm dead serious because I haven't done this in a while. 
Jesus Christ. Holy shit. Yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it. Jesus. Yeah, I feel it. It's there. He hasn't felt his foot in 17 years. <laughs> yeah. So, so let me tell you guys our protocol before we finish this out so that you know, because although I do fully credit the psilocybin and the THC, there's other things that we've done too that I'm sure have helped with it. Growing our own food. I try to eat, we try not to eat anything that's processed. I did cheat today and make the kids some craft macaroni and cheese. Please slap me um, for lunch or the little one anyway. But, you know, I had a box and it was there. Um, I am slowly running through the rest of all of that crap and we, we will not eat anything like that anymore. But Mick does not eat processed food at home. Distilled water. We distill our own water. We use the ozone cup from Fresh Mouth, um, freshmouth.life by the way, and the toothpaste as well. So I convinced him to switch from aluminum. Uh, he was using so much, like so much different deodorant, spraying so many different things on his body every day. I mean, he would like layer five different scents on his body. I'm like, you are literally just spraying toxic chemicals on you every day. Please stop. And he did. He stopped. Um, he switched to aluminum-free deodorant. Uh, fluoride free toothpaste, the fresh mouth toothpaste, um, non-processed food, real food. So important distilled water and cardio miracle, which I've been drinking throughout the show, which again, um, is our featured sponsor for the show to find miracle.com and, uh, the microdosing, the, uh, psilocybin, with uh, sassafras and THC. And here we are. Our marriage is stronger than it's ever been. We've always been friends, but um, I mean, he's my soulmate. He's my other half. And I no longer fear that he is going to drop dead at any time. I carried that fear with me. I lived in limbo with that for 17 years, 17 years. I thought that at any moment he was going to drop dead. I no longer think that. I no longer think that. I used to joke that at this point, the only way he'd die is if I killed him because um, God didn't want him and the devil scared of him, which may still be true, but, uh, I, I don't have that fear anymore. That was the last fear that I had that I let go of because he's, it's, it is possible to heal. Is it a miracle? Yeah, it is. Is it, was it easy? No. Not at all, but he doesn't have to be the only one that could do it. You can heal. Big pharma is not the way. You got to live clean. 
You got to grow your own food, drink clean water and um, use the plants that God gave us to heal ourselves as medicine. And, you know, that's it. Have faith, have true faith because uh, that's what we need. Anyway, uh, just about pushing three hours here before I wrap up. You guys have any questions? Because I know it's uh, probably longer than I've talked in, in a long time, just me. So anyway, anyone have any questions here? Liana? <laughs> I, I like your sticker. That's cool. Oh, look at the hugs. All right. What do I use for distilling water? So we have a countertop water distiller. Um, it basically runs all the time. I clean it probably every couple of days at this point because we run it so much. Um, I got it on Amazon. I got it on sale, but I want to say it's like 120 bucks right now. So it's a uh, the one we use. Hold on, I'll look for it and tell you. It is a Morphon, M-O-P-H-O-R-N, more, uh, yeah, Mophorn countertop water distiller, M-O-P-H-O-R-N. And it's, it's fantastic. Um, it, because it has a glass carafe. I mean, what's the point of distilling water, hot water into a plastic carafe, Right because then you're just leaching plastics into it. That's the other thing we did. And it seems small, but I think it's made a big difference. Get rid of all the plastic cups in my house, just about. Um, we use mason jars for almost everything. It's great. So, yeah. So, um, does Mick have a taller, more endowed single brother? It's the single part that's rough. He does have significantly taller brothers. Not sure about their endowments, um, but uh, none of them are single. So, yeah. Let's see. Okay. All right. So uh, that's our story. And um, it's been a, a long road, but we got through it together because we're stubborn and committed and loyal and uh, mostly stubborn. So, and we truly love each other. So uh, I hope that that's helped you guys. And we will be back tomorrow. Mick and I both with true spiracy. Um, because, uh, he doesn't even know what I'm doing tomorrow for Truespiracy. You guys know that I usually plan Truespiracies because I kind of plan all the shows. But um, yeah, uh, I thought I clicked on Liana's show the other day um, and it was something else. It was actually um, Raise the Frequency and I got sucked into this amazing interview and it was probably the, like every single thing this guy, this guy said rang true to me stuff that I, like I knew, but I didn't know, you know, 
I hadn't heard anyone else say before. So I want to play that interview for you. And we're going to talk about the Noahide laws and how we got here and where, where we're going, where they want us to go. Um, oh, PQuest, where can we get microdosing? Um, that is, uh, email, email me, um, mcfeelin at gmail.com. It depends where you are. I believe, um, it is legal on most of the left coast and in Colorado right now. Um, so yeah. Anyway, let's see. Uh, I do oils and frequency. Yeah. Oh, that's the other thing we do. Thank you for bringing that up, Slavsky. Um, I also started playing, uh, and I, again, about a year ago, this whole life change really was about a year ago with mixed heart attack. I mean, the full on, you know, getting rid of all the processed food, adding the distilled water, the cardio miracle, the, um, high dose vitamins. And, um, I mean, a lot of that's come up in the last, you know, it's, that's all been in the last year, but the frequency thing, I have a, a sleep app on our TV, right? On the Roku. Um, and, uh, so I have him sleeping to, um, 4.32 or 5.28 every night. And that's made a big difference too. So that, that really helps as well. Um, the Kush creams and the, the serious CBD together helps with the pain. The Kush creams has a lot of the oils in it, a lot of essential oils in it. So that's, that helps as well. Um, so yeah. Um, did I follow up the last numerology? Hmm. No, I did not. But uh, we'll maybe get into that tomorrow too. So, you know, numbers just, they're constant. So, um, all right. I got to go make dinner for the family. We'll be back tomorrow with True Spiracy at uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. 145 for Liana's Lounge. So be sure to tune in for that. I think, I hope you guys will find it as absolutely fascinating as I do, as I did. Um, a, a big picture view, as it were. And uh, with that, thank you all for watching. God bless. I, I don't wanna act too high and mighty cause tomorrow I may fall down on my face. Lord, thank you for sunshine. Thank you for rain, thank you for joy, thank you for pain. It's a beautiful day, it's a beautiful day. So thank you for sunshine, thank you for rain, thank you for joy, thank you for pain. It's a beautiful day, it's a beautiful day, it's a beautiful day. Sometimes life is good, but then the trouble comes my way. But whatever happens, Lord, I thank you for this day. But when I'm feeling troubled, I lift my hands and pray that your will be done in the rain or sun. No, it's a beautiful day. I don't wanna act too high and mighty. Lord, I thank you for sunshine.
Death and resurrection.